0: Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we're a podcast, or many call us an oddcast, for those who value real, different conversations about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. And today, this is uh, an incredible, incredible episode, and it's actually the first in a two-part series we're doing on entrepreneurship. On our next episode, one of my favorite founder and CEOs, Osman Rashid. He started the $8 billion publicly traded Chig and now Convo.com. On this episode, one of my favorite people, entrepreneur, co-founder of Floodgate Capital, one of the top venture capitalists in the world, according to Forbes magazine. And he's the host of a fantastic new podcast called Starting Greatness. My buddy, longtime friend and colleague, Mike Maples Jr. is here. And recently, Mike wrote a fantastic post called How to Build a Breakthrough. And in that post, he introduces a concept he calls backcasting as distinct from forecasting. The idea essentially is a forecast takes the present and projects it into the future. If you want to produce a breakthrough, a breakthrough is the opposite of that. So he advocates mentally standing in the future, let's say 18, 36, 48 months out or longer, and thinking back to today and saying, how do I want it to be in the future and building the future of your choosing with this idea he calls backcasting. And that's what we're going to go deep on today. Now, if you're speaking of building the future, if you're a leader or a marketer right now on Lockhead on Marketing, we're doing the world's first ever marketing pod storm. You've probably heard of a tweet storm. Marion Webster says a tweet storm is a series of related tweets posted by a, tw- posted by a Twitter user in quick succession. So a podstorm is the same thing just with podcasts and we're trying to give you a bunch of ideas and strategies to both drive revenue in the short term and design and dominate your market category in the long term. So go to lockhead.com and check out lockhead on marketing or hit subscribe on any podcast platform including Spotify where you can find lockhead on marketing. Also, as a side note, every Friday during the Podstorm at 11:30 a.m. Pacific time, we'll do a live Q&A episode on our Facebook group, uh, you can just search for us on Facebook and you'll find us. Now, as you know, America is ready to get back to work. But to win in the new economy, you need every advantage. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. NetSuite is the number one cloud business system in the world, and it includes finance, HR, inventory, omni channel e commerce, and much more. With NetSuite, you can manage every penny with precision. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need. And my friends at NetSuite have put together a fantastic guide called the seven actions businesses need to take now. We all definitely need to take action. And you can get a free copy of that at NetSuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you will also be able to get set up for your free NetSuite product tour. NetSuite.com slash different. And in a crisis, data matters. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, decision, and action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, to learn how to turn data into doing at splunk.com slash D to E. Now, hey ho, let's go. So uh how's Silicon Valley doing Mike Mables? Well, i you know, I haven't really
1: set foot in it very much. So I'm just uh, <laughs> just sheltering in place at, at the at the man cave here in, in uh Ross, California. So if Silicon Valley's an idea, I guess it's doing pretty well. But um, yeah. as a place there, are, there aren't aren't many people going to work.
0: Yeah, there are not pe- very many people around. And actually, you know, yeah you and I share many things in common. One of them, of course, is being uh, leaders of the entrepreneurial parade. And one of the things that uh, Silicon Valley companies don't get credit for is many of them, including some of the big ones, put a shelter in place, put a work from home in place before the counties or the state even did. They acted very quickly.
1: Yeah, I agree. And in many ways, Silicon Valley got switched on to this faster than a lot of the parts of the country and i think the reason is that uh, silicon valley entrepreneurs understand network effects and they they understood how fast this virus was spreading in china and they could they could quickly understand that if you know if the r factor gets past a critical point that it just it 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 expands at an exponentially increasing rate and can't be stopped and so you have to you have to get the transmission the retransmission rate low, or it's unstoppable. I don't think that the, um, the the East Coast, for example, caught on to it as quickly. They were they were more interested in like the the narrative. So you know, the center of gravity, of the East Coast is New York and DC, and um, politics and um, sort of New York Times type of media. I don't think was as oriented towards thinking about. Things in an exponential way, but but the people I know here who understood network effect businesses, they were sheltering in place way before even Google was. They're just like, if this doesn't, if 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 something doesn't go our way, this is going to be a catastrophe, and they were right.
0: Well, it it is interesting that a uh, part of the world that has spent the better part of the last twenty years trying to figure out how to make digital products go viral understood how viruses yeah, like
1: Yeah, they're like, wow, you know, this is, I could only wish for something this viral in my own product, you know. <laughs> so people were, people were definitely switched on to how dangerous it was.
0: And um, how do you think um, the typical venture backed uh, startup is, and I know there's no such thing, but, you know, uh, what's your read on, on the typical venture uh, startup in Silicon Valley right now? Yeah. Um,
1: I heard somebody suggest it's almost like the hand of God and the hand of God came down and struck some companies badly, not through any fault of their own. You know, if you, if you sell to restaurants or you sell to hospitality industry or you're in the hospitality industry, it's hard to even forecast your business, you know, no matter how well you're executing. And then, and then, the hand of God lifted some other companies up, right? Like Zoom and folks that uh, live exclusively in the world of bits and not atoms. And so I've never really seen a situation where you have a a tale of two types of businesses. You know, most recessions, they affect some worse than others, but they affect everybody badly to some degree. Uh, Whereas what we're seeing in this one is that It's almost like a lot of things that were already starting to gather got accelerated forward, you know, telemedicine, uh, remote and distributed work, um, uh, distance learning, uh, remote work infrastructure. And so, um, you, you could make the case that this has had a, 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 dramatic impact in both directions, ironically.
0: Well, and to your point on Hand of God, you know, you think about, you mentioned Zoom and, uh, you know, we've had Eric, Yu on a couple of times and I don't know him nice. super well, but I know him well enough, you know, and he seems like a, a, a wonderful entrepreneur and, and in my estimation, You know the story of the entrepreneurial uh immigrant that we uh i think most of us love to hear
1: i hope we continue to like to hear
0: yeah i hope so right fingers crossed um a little little some little (laughs) hopefully it was just some toe stubbing and nothing worse but we'll see over time but then you compare that to airbnb who again is another one of those stories that is a classic silicon valley story that you love but to your point on hand of god Zoom gets catapulted and what happens to a company like Airbnb?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, I think Airbnb will end up okay, but, you know, it's going to be really hard to know how fast does demand come back or does it ever come back in the same fundamental way? And, you know, it really has nothing to do with any of your strategy or your execution or even your value proposition. It's just you just, you know, it's kind of like you know, the dinosaurs on earth and an asteroid comes down and blankets the sky and the dinosaurs can't breathe. And, you know, it's punctuated equilibrium. And, uh, you know, I've, this more than anything in my lifetime feels like that, that it just kind of this, this completely random black swan event out of nowhere. And I, I guess you can't completely call it a black, black swan because it was predictable. There were smart people that were saying that we were on a path to this happening. And so, to be a true black swan event, it would have had been highly unpredictable. But I think that the, the asymmetric power and impact of it, I think, probably even exceeded even some of the most insightful people's projections.
0: And so uh, this may be a stupid question, but uh, let's just get it on the table. Biggest black swan you've seen in your career?
1: I, yeah, certainly the biggest outlier event. You know, the biggest um, the biggest ripple effect. And um, the, the, the other thing is just how disproportionately it's affected people. So, you know, we talk about startups that we're working with, but gosh, I mean, that's nothing compared to what it means if you own a restaurant or if you, you know, if you work in some of these industries where you're just, it's not even legal for you to operate. And so, um, you know, and not, not many businesses can survive with months without any revenue at all, especially a restaurant who struggles to save money to even, you know, make the payroll month by month.
0: Yeah. We've had some, uh, Santa Cruz treasures, restaurants, uh, one in particular, yeah. um, just pack it in. That's generations old. That's an absolute treasure. And you're just like, fuck. Yeah. 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 So that,
1: that type of stuff, it's hard to know how it bounces back and what, what comes back. But yeah. But my guess is it'll be, uh, You know, my my uncle uh, had a sporting goods chain of stores in Oklahoma and Shawnee, Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma. And then he used to sell uh, athletic equipment to high school teams. And he's like, "Ah, I'm so glad I retired. He's like, I I can't imagine what I would do right now. Mm -hmm. You know, Shawnee, Oklahoma, nobody's on the streets. You know, restaurants, they're not even delivering. They're just shut down, you know. I remember growing up, going to the Hamburger King and like all these restaurants down Shawnee, none of them, none of them are open. And I don't know if they survive. You know, I don't know how you how you recover from that.
0: Well, and the horrible thing is, of course, many of these places are generations old and and many of these places are family places. And if you do a slight little bit of homework, what you realize is that 50 percent of the United States of America works for what I lovingly refer to as a small entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. A- and yeah. and by measure of innovation and applications for new uh, patents and things along those lines, it's disproportionately to to uh, newer and smaller companies. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: And it's you know the other thing is if if you were going to look at entrepreneurship in the country, it's it's been declining, unfortunately. I I think a lot of people don't realize that people when they think of entrepreneurship tend to think of Silicon Valley or unicorns and you know big outcomes. But if you, if you look at entrepreneurship writ large, it's been going down and, you know, you could argue the reasons, but those are the types of entrepreneurs who are getting killed by this. And so, um, you know, people tend to think of small business like it's an acronym, SMB or whatever, but, you know, the, the, it's real people out there uh, trying to make their business work. And now they've basically been told, not only is there a massive recession, but it's illegal for you to operate your business. You know, for you to operate your business, it'd be like operating a speakeasy in the 30s under prohibition. You know, you can't.
0: Yeah. You legally can't do it. Yeah. And I, I we've seen news reports of, you know, various uh, s- small business owners, retail business owners. I think there was a gal who owned a hair salon, if I'm not mistaken, getting arrested. And it's pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame.
1: So, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in it, it, based on how I've seen people act. I still have a lot of faith in the American people. And I think that that will come out of this OK, uh, maybe even better in some ways. Uh, and and by the way, obviously, this isn't just an American problem. I mean, you want to see everybody do well. It's just that I I have more exposure to what's happening in my own you know, sort of in my own neck of the woods, but, yeah. um, I've been amazed. I've been amazed at like the frontline workers, you know, the nurses, the doctors, the people who are working at the grocery stores, uh, delivery people, um, people in the restaurants that can, can stay in business, but also, um, a, a lot of these billionaires that get vilified, you know, I think Jeff Bezos has stepped up to the plate. I mean, don't even get me started on Bill Gates. Um, the th- that's the irony is that the people that um, everybody says their tax money should go to haven't stepped up to the plate as far as I can tell. I don't, I don't think they have any answers for any of this stuff other than to demagogue the issue and uh, play politics as usual. And I never, you know, it used to be when we would go to war, have a national crisis, we'd all say, OK, let's put this petty stuff aside for a while. Uh, there's a bigger cause here. But I I, I don't see that happening. I see it getting politicized by both sides and, you know, in a a really irresponsible, unfortunate way. But fortunately, I think that the people here are better than our politicians. And so I think I think I think we'll be okay.
0: Well, and to your point, uh, I think some many of our entrepreneurs have shown themselves to be better than our politicians. I mean, we know uh, there's been a failure at the federal level. Yeah. There's no question about that, and I, I don't mean that in a political sense. There's been a failure, for sure, uh, that has cost lives. There's, smart people think that, not you know, and I'm I'm not one of them, but I, I I get it. That's that happened at the local level. You know, I know here in Santa Cruz, we were not we were not ready. We're I think we're ready now if the current models hold. But there was a tremendous lack of transparency and no real fucking plan and. So you know at all levels right the interesting yeah, will,
1: and and you know it wasn't just the government um i don't think the mainstream media did a good job you know it, it's a lot of the institutions that we count on uh, in times like this just didn't get the job done and uh you know that's a real shame
0: well you look you look at something that you know and listen i consume a fair amount of News, uh, yeah. something we yeah. didn't—I certainly didn't hear until well into this thing—and that is that eight thousand Chinese nationals a day land in California between LAX yeah. and SFO. We, yeah. we didn't, we didn't hear that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we heard a lot of things that were that should have been questioned that weren't questioned. You know, the, the minute I heard that we didn't need to wear face coverings, I was like, no, no, that can't be true. That can't yeah. be right. Makes no look. You know how much time I spent in medical school, but that just right. a drunken <laughs> a drunken four year old has questions about that statement, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, but you know, uh, up until weeks before it got to be a crisis, uh, you'd read in the in the papers and online that this is just not n- not not any bigger of a deal than the flu. You know, it's and it's it's part of what happens when you have a a, a world that's too divided is that uh, people are so eager to not assume positive intent in people that are in the out group of their tribe, that they're rather than think about the facts and the first principle reasoning behind what's happening, they look at it as, uh, you know, like a great example is this, there was this, do you remember the article about how Silicon Valley is afraid of handshakes and, uh, you know, and the, rather, rather than have a, an objective fact driven discussion about threat of this, global pandemic before it became hypercritical. Instead, it was a, another opportunity to enforce a, a pre-existing narrative of how Silicon Valley people are weirdly antisocial, because that's kind of what people like to talk about. And it's just it's just a, a really sad case study of how when, when our institutions forget what their job is, uh, that, that you get these kind of problems.
0: Uh, Roughly that same time frame, maybe a little earlier, there was videos going around of um, Korean guys tapping each other in the feet and almost sort of dancing instead of shaking hands. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And people were sort of sending that around making sort of, you know in some cases, less overt, in some cases, more overt jokes about, oh, you know, those kooky Koreans or whatever, like, like, oh, fuck, come on, you know, right. look, it's like nine eleven, right? Oh, nobody saw this coming. Well, it turns out a shit ton of people saw this coming, right? And now, of course, you know, there, as you know, there have been people who've been monitoring this and afraid of this for more than a decade.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the stuff that Bill Gates said even five years ago was remarkably on point. Uh, it's just you know, it's a shame that that it it took this happening for us to decide to take it seriously. But in the end, we got to move on, and we've got to, you know, we we've got to we
0: got to get better for it. You know, you know, Bill Gates. Your dad worked with him for the formative early years in micro at Microsoft. And you've heard all these crazy conspiracy theories that, you know, people are the Alex Joneses of the world are spreading about him. What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, let's see. Maybe maybe I should start with um, hopefully this isn't a shaggy dog story. But one time um, Bill Bill was in uh, Houston to visit with Compaq, uh, 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 which was, you know, the company used to be an independent company before it was acquired by HP. And they. Because he was uh, in the area for Halloween, my dad invited him uh, over for Halloween. And we had um, a whole bunch of people there. And um, my dad was nice enough to sit me next to him at the table. And I'm like, you know, Bill is a really smart, thoughtful guy. You know, he doesn't like to make a lot of small talk, or at least he didn't at the time. And so I thought, well, I'm going to make sure that I've really studied for this you know, that I have something to talk to him about that he'll find interesting. And so I I found this obscure essay by uh, Alan Greenspan written in the late 50s about antitrust law. And at the time, Microsoft was in the midst of this antitrust case. And so I uh, I said to him, um, you know, we, you know, it, it didn't take much to get him to talk about the antitrust case. And so he gets to talking about it. And, um, and I said, well, you know, there's this article written by Alan Greenspan in the late 1950s that uh, backs up a lot of the points that you're making here. And he's like, oh yeah, I remember that essay. And he, he knew it um, he knew it better than I did. And, you know, I'd studied it and gotten all ready for this thing. And then he said, well, what else are you reading? And I said, uh, well, I'm reading this book called Into Thin Air by this guy named Krakauer. You know, it was this about this climb on Everest. And he goes, oh, great. You know, I'm having lunch with him next week. <laughs> and he could recite the last, 15 people who'd climb Mount Everest. Um, <laughs> I have never seen anybody in my life who can remember what Bill could remember. My, you know, my dad would tell me he'd have meetings with him at Microsoft and they'd argue about something and Bill would say, well, that's not what you said three years ago when we talked about it this way. And my dad would be like, what are you talking about? And afterwards, he'd go look in his email and search it. And he'd be like, I'll be, I'll be damned. He was right every time. Uh, And so I sit there and I think, okay, who would you want to be going after these hard world problems? I know my pick. Um, You know, I've just, I've just never seen anybody. There's a lot of smart people in business, but when you meet Bill, you're like, for once people aren't exaggerating. He really is that smart. And so I'm like, you know, if, if he wants to use those smarts to go chase pandemics and climate change and. Infectious disease and, uh, you know, clean water, you know, hey, God bless him. You know, at, l- at least somebody smart is chasing it. At least somebody, you know, I'm pretty confident he's thought a lot about it uh, based on my limited exposure to him.
0: And, and you don't have any concern that he's using um, chemtrail infected Bigfoots to install 5G to infect us all to make money on the vaccine?
1: Um, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure not. I, you know, um, I think if he wanted to do that stuff, he'd probably it'd probably be way worse than it is. He's because he's so effective at his job. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, this the stuff that people come up with on these conspiracy theories it just blows my mind. I just. It's funny. I don't even t- take it seriously enough to get upset about it or disappointed about it. To me, it's just absurd noise to just ignore.
0: Well, I probably get upset about it enough for <laughs> more than both of us because I think I think some of the look. I like a good big Bigfoot story, and you know, if you want to talk about UFOs and shit and all that, it's, that's all fun. But uh I think there's some real damage being done by these. Uh, Conspiracy people right now—that is—that uh, is not helpful. Uh, to your point, yeah. you know, we should be on a war footing, and and we should be unified in that war. Right, I totally agree.
1: You know, we're the entire, and it's the entire world fighting an, uh, a near invisible enemy, and we need to we need to get into a posture like we got into when we in World War II, and when we decided that this was an existential threat and that failure is not an option. And, uh, you know, there's way, way too much trivial arguments about silly nonsense and not enough, not, not enough focus on how how do we get our best minds and most talented people focused on really beating this and understanding that there's no plan B or not a lot of room for arguing over nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of moving on from arguing <laughs> over nonsense, uh, you wrote this piece uh, just recently, and um, I-, I thought you shared a very interesting perspective on um, kind of how we move forward and uh, and how we look for break- breakthroughs. And uh, w- one of the things I love that you wrote in here, you said the future doesn't happen to us. It happens because of us
1: yeah and, and you know you and i have riffed on this kind of stuff before right um i think that i think i've heard you say that the downside of talking in terms of things like product market fit is it implies that there's some pre-existing market out there that you have to discover like it's almost like you're lewis and clark and you're trying to discover the tributaries of the mississippi river and and be you know map what's already there and, and, and that's not my experience of startups at all, right? Um, great founders design the future. Um, and design is the right word because it's a word writ large. It's not just about drawings or how things look or even how they function or perform. It's about people with a determined idea of what a better future should be uh, not only building that better future, but convincing people in the present to change the trajectory that they're on to get, into that future. Uh, so to me, um, entrepreneurs don't discover markets as much as they create movements that become markets and they create movements, uh, be not just because they build things, but because they move people, uh, to their point of view, uh, and they move people from the present to a better future. Um, so, so, uh, you know I got I got interested in that idea and you know mark mark Andreessen wrote I thought a good post on it's time to build and and he kind of closes it by saying what are you going to build and I thought it might be useful to try to help entrepreneurs uh, get some lessons that I'd uh, received from some of the super performers that I'd worked with on how do you how do you build a breakthrough and so I've spent a lot of time over the years trying to trying to deconstruct what they do and how it's different from what normal startups look like. And so that's why I wrote this post on backcasting.
0: Yeah. And so maybe let's go there. And You know, my, my friend and mentor Bix Bixon has a similar idea. He calls it future hacking, but I think it's a, it's a very interesting mindset if you sort of say backcasting is the opposite of forecasting, right? Right, right. So let's let's dig into what you what you, the difference between forecasting and backcasting, and then let's really dig into uh, backcasting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I could give you a difference, and then uh, maybe a metaphor that would help. So forecasting um, projects forward from what's already happened, and so you're basically taking history and projecting that history will move forward. Roughly the same way. So when you forecast, you have a set of projected futures based on the the present, the past. Backcasting says that you know, like uh, my friend Steve Blank says, uh, you should do customer development. And you do that by getting out of the building. I like to say you do backcasting by getting out of the present, and um, you get out of the present by projecting yourself into different futures based on inflections that could change the future. And then as you start to define those potential futures, you work backwards in time to the present so that you can understand the steps. Uh, So like, why is that important? Well, the metaphor I like is a tree. Let's say you want to climb a really tall tree. You can't even see the top of the tree from the ground. Backcasting basically says, Transport yourself above the top of the tree so that you can see all the branches that you need to climb from the bottom up the top. Whereas if you just start climbing from the bottom, you might make what appears to be the next logical move, and all of a sudden you find yourself out on a limb and you can't get to where you want to be because you're stuck out on a limb. And so you know the the problem with the problem with uh, forecasting is you're going to always try to find problems that exist in the present. You're going to try to find white space in current markets. You're going to try to find pain with existing customers. You're going to ask them what their current pains are. And those are all recipes for a more mundane startup outcome than than an outcome that says, I'm going to make a bet on a different set of futures that are not obvious to people. And um, the opportunity is going to be how asymmetric the upside is when I'm right. Uh, and so so backcasting is all about um, a set of steps that you take to project yourself into the future, find what, what I call uh, plausible, possible, preposterous potential futures, and then project them back to the present and ask what, what steps you would take to design the future that you want.
0: And the thing I love about this, Mike, it's brilliantly written, so thank you. And the thing I love about it, and I think this is what Bix means as well, is there is such a mindset difference when you say, "I have a quote-unquote vision for the future," but contextually, you're, you and I are standing in the present, and we're looking out to this future that we, as entrepreneurs, in this example, say we want to create. And, you know, ten years from now, we want and then we, then we do the logical thing when you stand in the present pointing to a goal and a vision in the future, which is, okay, what do we need to do to get from where we are to where we want to be? And then we got to overcome these things and this and that and the other, right? However, when you stand 10 years in the future and you say, um, this is how we want the world to look 10 years from now. Yeah. And then you backcast to the present and you say, "How do I get the present up to my future?" That's right. And 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 it may sound like a mind trick bullshit, but it it here's 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 the, what I love about it. And you you tell me. I think when you do this backcasting, it allows you to be a little bit more of a dreamer or a pirate. In other words, you look back and go, "Well, if I have this outrageous vision," I look back and I go, "Yeah, but like." The entire medical system needs to change at about step four here for my vision to come true. Yeah. If you're if you're forecasting, that seems like an in, in insurmountable object. If you're backcasting, you look at it, you go, I don't know how we're gonna do that, but unfortunately we have to do that if we're gonna make this happen. And it just it's somehow, and maybe I'm being silly or optimistic or Alcoholic, but it's a little more whimsical and feels a little easier when you say I've already produced it. I'm standing in that future and I'm looking back and I'm trying to figure it out from the future, as opposed to try to figure it out from the future looking forward. But I'll I'll shut up and get your reaction.
1: No, it's good. I mean, to me, the 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 main idea I wanted to get across was that the future isn't something you predict. The, the The idea that you predict the future. It is an idea of learned helplessness. It's an idea that says the future is going to happen, so deal with it, make the most of it. The future is what we make of it, and so uh, if you stand in the present and try to predict the future, you won't think of it that way. You know, you'll think of it in an, in an unempowered, you know, future happens to me sort of fashion, and um, you know, the future happens because some people stand up and decide to be counted. And they, they see a different future than where we're headed that's better. And, they, 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 and this is what's so special about entrepreneurs, because people who live in the present struggle to bring the future to reality. But so do people who live in the future, usually. You know, there are a lot of, I like to say that you've got uh, practitioners in the present and you've got seers living in the future. And they may be sci-fi authors, they may be professors, they may be inventors they may be who knows, right? Video game it, designers <laughs> yeah but but the funny thing is if you ask those people, okay, great i I can see this potential future that you're describing now help me think about the product that you'd build as the next step to get us to that future. They don't like those kind of questions because it's just it's mundane to them and so, what, what I've always felt is that there's an impedance mismatch between people who live in the present and seers who live in the future, and they don't like to move from where they are. And so it's the entrepreneur's job to marry the, the seers in the future with the practitioners in the present. And they, they work with seers to visualize potential futures that would be better, and then using their entrepreneurial skill... They are. They define the steps that the seers are unwilling to define and unable to define and not even excited to define. They figure out the sequential steps, the branches to climb on the tree that now they can go back to the present and get people to get on that first branch climbing up, up the tree to the future. And um, that's why it's so rare to see great entrepreneurs, because you have to live in both worlds and you have to speak the language of both people. And you have to like oscillate between the the vision of the future and the pragmatism of the now uh, to make it real. And that's why, you know, they're, you know, the great entrepreneurs are national or global treasure, right? They're just, they're, they're people that should be celebrated in my, my opinion, because they're just so profoundly valuable to this world.
0: And, and they also have to, there's, there's almost always a bet, even if it's well planned on some. Miraculous event and or some luck, right? Like, I'm just, I, well, as you're talking, I'm thinking about Henry Ford. I'm like, yeah, I'm backcasting as Henry Ford and I'm looking to the present and I'm standing in the future that we now understand. Of course, I'm like, yeah. Uh, well, and there's the part where the federal government creates a national roadway system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, like when, when you're, when you're, <laughs> when you're backcasting requires that, like you're fucking backcasting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and
1: and you know you bet you better find a way to sell cars before that happens,
0: right? Right. Uh, so you gotta so if, you, if you if the barrier to success is a uh, interstate highway system, um, you got to find the bridge from. the 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 cruddy roads gravel roads we have now and that because otherwise we're never going to get there from here right that's what you're talking about it's that ability to go from the road system we understand today to the 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 gravel roads we had then and figuring out how you get make all that happen go from the past to the or go from the present to the future that you want
1: right and if i was you know maybe one of these days i'll write a follow-up to it but um when you backcast, right, there's all these steps from the, the future that you believe could happen to the present. But with each of those steps, you try to anticipate what the barriers will be. So like, for example, with um, uh, cars, there was this thing called the red flag laws. So I don't know if you've ever heard of this, Christopher, um, but um, they would say that, you know, cars uh, uh, t- make horses afraid. And so therefore, if if a car is coming up the street and there's that somebody has to be in front of this car with a red flag, waving the red flag uh, to make sure that if there's any horses in the vicinity, everybody will be informed that this dangerous, scary, loud car that scares horses is coming. So, you know, why was that law passed? Really, it was passed by the, the people who don't want to see a different future. It was passed by the lobbyists who didn't want to see cars replace horses. It was passed by the buggy whip salesman. It was passed by, it was people who said, Hey, you know, cars go faster than horses. They work better. But if I can force somebody to walk in front of a horseless carriage with a red flag and wave it, a lot of, a lot of the upside of cars isn't going to be realized. And so, uh, you know, you have these, you, you have these people all along the way who, who want to stay in the present who, construct reasons for the the better future idea to be to to and and the the thing they always fall back on is safety you know they all you know um when the you know austin city council gave uh lyft and uber hard times all about quote quote safety uh when the when the phone companies when uh phone deregulation happened and different handset vendors could manufacture different phones. I I don't know if you remember growing up, like every phone was just the same phone. It was like this beige phone. Maybe you could get it in orange or a different color, but it was the same freaking phone that everybody had. And uh the telco said, well that it won't be safe to have these other better phones. You know, it's there's more of a likelihood that in an emergency call the call won't go through.
0: Or maybe they'll just randomly explode if they come in red. <laughs>
1: That's right. So, you know, there's always some uh, some uh, disingenuous appeal to safety to try to stop this stuff from happening.
0: Now, I love that insight. That's an important one to keep our eye on, particularly now. So uh, a bit of a stream of consciousness, and then I really want your reaction. So been talking to, trying to talk to some smart people, uh, you know, Kevin Maney of late comes to mind. And, but a lot of smart people I've been talking to say, look, this whole idea that we're going to open back up um, that we're reopening the economy and all this sort of stuff that's not what's going on at all that February is over, and essentially there were a set of mega trends you mentioned some of them telehealth and you know zoom and things like this that were me- mega trends that were on track anyway that now have gotten more than likely meaningfully exponentially catapulted forward, right? I, right? I I don't know that I would want to own a lot of w- office space where white collar knowledge workers go to work. right? So there's that. And I think some of that's somewhat obvious, but there may be a lot of discontinuous exponential changes that happen that are completely uh or, or almost completely unforeseeable at this point. And so here's the aha. Are we, as a result of this black swan, is this a dislocation that, like lots of others, creates massive pain and suffering, both health and, and, and economic, but also like a birthing almost, birth is a, a new thing on the other side, and that potentially... C-19 is an accelerant and a, and a creator uh, to some degree of a whole new level of innovation on the backside of this thing. Or am I just trying to put, you know, uh, whipped cream on dog shit? Um, so I'd be very curious what you think about sort of a, as we move through the economic pain of, of what we're suffering now. And as we try to move beyond so many thousands of people that we've lost I mean, what do you think about the future and and opportunities for innovation and for technology and for, of course, entrepreneurship and new categories?
1: Well, I think that that in the end, chaotic circumstances favor startups and they favor bold people with new ideas, and so I'm I'm optimistic about. Entrepreneurship. Well, it depends on how you define it, right? I, th- I still think that for small businesses, there's too many regulations. I think that, uh, the, 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 there are situations where people don't understand the damage that they do with some of these policies. Uh, you know, these days, if you want to own a bakery and you thought you were start a bakery because you like to make cakes, you got to have a, a binder full of regulations to hire people. And, uh, you know, you you spend all this time understanding these real esoteric rules when you thought you were in business to make cakes. And so, uh, you know, I think that the red tape has re- really, really been painful. And I think that, unfortunately, COVID-19 has had a disproportionate impact on those people through no fault of their own. Uh, so when I think of entrepreneurship, it's the stuff closer to, closer to me, the, the tech startups that try to have escape velocity, go, go after global markets. And I think that, um, over time, th- it'll be clear that some great startups were started in this, in this time of massive change. Uh, because I think that still waters are not good for entrepreneurs, but raging waters that are chaotic and unpredictable that's that's the entrepreneur's game
0: hmm. you said chaos favors entrepreneurs yeah. and so um you know where's your head at where's Anne's head at and and the rest of your team as you sort of think about this from a business uh entrepreneur venture uh perspective what what and i know it's incredibly hard to see but what are the next six to twelve months look like to you? What are you thinking about? What 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 do you what do you think you might be doing? Yeah,
1: well the first the first thing we had to do is to try to work with the startups that we're already working with and to make sure that they owned their runway rather than became victims of circumstance. And so uh a lot of a, a lot of um startups right now are kind of having this debate about do I play offense or defense? And um I actually think that that's a false choice. Uh, I think that you can always take the initiative, no matter what, and it's it's really about taking the initiative and making a set of choices that allow you to to own your circumstances rather than to let them own you. And so, you know, we went, we worked with the startups that 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 were already uh, involved with and tried to understand what are their current runways look like? How will they be impacted by all this? And then how do we, how do we take the initiative or, or how do we help founders take the initiative? And, you know, there are several, several ways that you could do that. And um, one of the guys that I've always admired is a uh, commander, John Boyd. You've probably heard of him. Uh, the, the, the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide and act. And he was the, the, the famous pilot who changed the art of war. So Boyd had this philosophy that you don't play offense or defense, you take the initiative and um, you know so if you're let's say you're a jet and you get scrambled to go fight somebody, you don't know much about them, but now he hits your radar and now you know what kind of plane it is, how fast they're going. Uh, and you can you know, you observe and then you you orient yourself, you you define your mental model of what's happening then you decide what you're going to do, then you act. And um, what Boyd came to understand is that if you could train a pilot to observe, orient, decide, and act faster than the opponent, okay, now I I decide to race up into the clouds, and they're a little confused about where I am, and if I'm really fast. I observe what they did, I orient, decide, and act again. I might make a second count second move before they make their counter move. And now they made their counter move and I'm somewhere else other than where they thought I was. And so it beca- you get inside the, the enemy's decision loop and um you disorient the enemy because they don't know where you are. And as soon as they think they've spotted you, you're somewhere else. And so what what Boyd understood was Sounds that Sounds like you're um, talking about Muhammad Ali. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? So so like what 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 Boyd understood that applies to startups is you have to observe, orient, decide, and act now if you run a startup. You can't wait to see what the future is going to be. Nobody knows. And so, you know, whenever I talk to founders to give them advice, I start by saying, let me tell you uh, the first two words you should know. I'm uncertain. And so, like... I think that the the more uncertain things are ahead, the more important it is for you to have an anti-fragile mindset. The more important it is for you to um, to own your runway, not let it own you. The more important it is to be a creator of the change and a shaper of the situation rather than a reactor to the situation. And that's, to me, that's why Boyd is so great. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the F-16 fighter jet, was designed because of, boy, the the F-16 didn't fly as fast in a straight line as a Russian MiG, but it changed direction faster. And so the F-16 isn't just a plane, it's a system. And the system is the, uh, it's the mind of the pilot and their philosophy combined with a a weapon designed to implement that philosophy. And that's why it's very hard to beat the U.S. Air Force when they're flying F-16s, right? Because they're going to they're, they're going to move three times before you know what's happening. And, you know, you just better hope that they show mercy when they put you in radar lock.
0: You know, it reminds me a little bit about martial arts, right? And at, at a high level. Right. This is right. simplification, but like there's, there's hitting and there's getting hit, right? <laughs> and it That's turns right. out that the not getting hit part is actually more important than the hitting part.
1: <laughs> yeah and it's you know i'm I'm not that good of a fighter, but I imagine there's some similarity in terms of you win by maintaining the initiative, right you, you, yes. you win by maintaining the initiative and having them react to to the agenda that you set.
0: Well, it's interesting in the UFC, part of the judging criteria is aggression and octagon control. So they're not just measuring number of strikes, for example, or no, number of attempts, takedown attempts or number of hold attempts as it relates to jujitsu on the ground or things like that. But part of the criteria that judges are supposed to be using is aggression and octagon control. And one of the things that you look at to see it actually is if, if you watch who's the fighter in the center of the ring or the octagon, because this is not always true. It's an oversimplification, but generally the fighter in the center of the octagon is controlling the fight and for sure has to take much less steps to move around than the fighter on the outside. Right.
1: Yeah. And it's a lot like chess too, right. Control the center of the board of chess and your optionality goes way up. And so, you know, you take the initiative by controlling the center of the board. Um, now, you know if I control the center of the board against Gary Kasparov, he'd probably still kick my ass. But, um,
0: but you, <laughs> you know, but in, general, <laughs>
1: but in general, right? That's kind of what you try to do. Uh, but you know, I, I hope I'm not dwelling too much on uh, just what's happening. It's it's more the first thing I try to help founders do is just get a. Uh, Get an empowered mindset in the face of uncertainty rather than being afraid of it or rather than reacting to it or r- rather than thinking defensively about it or or not asking, how's it going to get when's it going to get back to normal or how long is it going to be? Those things are unknowable and, and and they assume a defensive mindset. But I do, you know, so the, the stuff that Anna and I've been thinking about. Um, I think everything that I look at always flows from inflections, right? And you can have technology inflections, you know, like Moore's law or the speed of uh, broadband transmission or um, how fast you can sequence a genome, things like that. And then you can have um, adoption inflection. So, you know, smartphone use goes from 10% to 50% in five years. And then you could have regulatory inflections. The, the one I like recently is uh it's legal to practice telemedicine across state lines. Uh, And then you could have belief inflections, which are the most subtle, but um, a belief inflection would be something that would have seemed like heresy is now common sense. So um, most doctors and patients probably wouldn't have thought all things being equal. I could probably do this as a telemedicine visit because they hadn't done it or tried it, but now enough people have no other way other than to do this. And so uh, chances are the belief around is telemedicine the right starting point for this probably goes up. So, you know, what, where could inflections affect the future? I think distributed healthcare for sure. Uh, maybe distributed education. You know, people have uh, experimented with homeschooling and distance learning now much more than they ever had. Remote works infrastructure is obvious. I think Zoom is just the beginning. Um, I think that, um, We're likely to see a relocalization of supply chains, and so that probably bodes well for three D printing, but also just advanced manufacturing and just sort of uh, localized uh, flow of goods. Um, And I, uh, the the other thing I just wonder about is um, I don't even really know how to describe it, but um, the new work style, if you
0: will. So, like, um, you know. You mean like now? It's pants are optional. <laughs> that kind right. of new work style. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So you know, you got um, you got fewer commutes, you got fewer flights, you got fewer trips to crowded places like Starbucks. Uh, you've got um, it's a little bit twenty first century Drucker esque thoughts, but rather than the organization man, it's you know what is the new work style, and uh, you know d- how does that. Um, you know, people talk about work and life balance, but now maybe work-life is combined somehow. And, um, maybe you have a fractional career where you're, um, you know, you're working for multiple companies at the same time, rather than just have one company that you work for. Um, so, so that, that, that type of thing is, uh, just, just interesting to me, and I, you know, I don't know, um, y- you know, when you, um, when you no longer assume the default is everybody has to be at one place. Now, do you have not just freelancers but sea uh, lancers, right, sea level exec freelancers? So, like, let's say Christopher, you know, you decide you want to get back in the game. Well, maybe you could be a sea lancer CMO for multiple companies, and and you might be able to make more money doing that, and you might be able to say, look, you know. There's no such thing as a canonical CMO job. You know some CMOs are good at category design, some are good at demand gen, some are good at launches and new companies, some are good at existing mature businesses. And so you could you could apply your talents and your specialty and your expertise optimally. And you know, in the past people said, well I can't have that. I, I've got to have somebody who's here all the time. It's part of the t- part of the quote unquote team. But if nobody's at the same place, now all of a sudden you have a belief inflection about that, right? And so, uh, you know, I think that there'll be a lot of belief inflections about how a company, quote-unquote, should run and how it, quote-unquote, should be organized. Uh, and, you know, w- what what kinds of things happen in meetings that shouldn't happen in meetings anymore. So, uh, you know,
0: we're, I've been thinking about that a fair amount as well. I knew you'd been thinking about all this stuff. and And, you know, <laughs> interestingly to your point, you and I as sort of, uh, you as an investor board member, me more as an advisor and uh, a little bit of a board member from time to time, it's sort of what we do now, right? What you just, yeah, what bit. you described about what I do is is sort of what I do. So I, I think that's, so, so this gig economy stuff that you guys uh, invested heavily in around, you know, Lyft and TaskRabbit being two of the primary companies that really created the whole thing. You see that now being at, at the sea level as well. It goes everywhere now.
1: I, I could see that happening. So I, I think that it's likely that we'll... So for example, and it's really subtle. Like I remember when I was a summer intern at IBM, if you wanted to make slides, something as simple as slides, you went to the repo department and you submitted a repo request and the repo people... Made your slides and they came out as foils. Well, now you have you have individual people with superhero capabilities. Like you've got a podcast and you you can reach an audience of a ton of people. You've got your own radio transmission antenna, right? And and it's like and your own network. And um, so, I mean, nobody needs a repo department anymore. You know, I can I can get a designer on Upwork. That'll do a kick ass design job and, th- and it'll cost me way less money, way less time than it ever would have if I had to take the entire bundle of this person works at my company. And, and it's not like that person who did the design is worse off or exploited. They, they don't want to work at the big company. And so, you know, um, people used to, people have always said employees are our biggest asset, but employment, the way it's defined, is a liability for both employees and companies right now. And, um, you know, could you employees- just say that again, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, people say employees are your biggest asset and they they it's like as a platitude. But big E heavyweight employment is a liability. And it's not a liability because employees are liabilities. It's a liability because employees are um forced to take a bundle of services that their employer provides, not very efficiently or well, and and, and they endure that set of, they endure that set of quote-unquote benefits uh, to be full-time employed at a company. And then similarly, the, the, the company has to pay these huge expense burdens. And so the other thing I've been interested in is um, imagine an unbundling of social contract services, if you will. And then, um, you know, if I'm a sealancer or freelancer or whatnot, uh, I can, I can get those services a la carte, it's kind of like on prem versus AWS, right, I can, I can get the services I care about a la carte. And rather than depend on a a, a vertically integrated mega corporation with a repo department, uh, and just massive org chart and cogs in the wheel, to provide that for me uh i go to the network uh and i and i consume it on the fly
0: however much i need according to market price i i also believe and you know heather and i wrote about it niche down this idea of a coming niche nato right that yeah. this world that you're describing it also allows me if you assume the world that you're describing makes people more competitive uh, and if you assume the world that you're describing allows people to double down on their strengths that are most valued. Right. 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 So I think about myself as a CMO, there are certain strengths I have that are fucking superpowers, right? right. So right. category design is the primary one. MNA would be an example. Um, 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 going public is an example, you know, and there are others. Right. But so yeah. if you said, hey, listen, um, now, I don't want to go do this. But if I let's say I niche down on I'm the I'm the IPO CMO. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You bring me you bring me in a year ahead of the IPO. We lock and load the category design. We line the whole thing up so that we use the IPO, not just as a financing event, but as a as a category. Uh, a design event and it catapults us into the leadership position and we go public and I get out Th- that could be a niche down thing that somebody goes and does. Right. Right. And when right. you get to be really good at that thing, you are the woe man or the man at that thing. Right.
1: So I look at it like um, the, 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 the 20th century was organizations, hierarchies, social contract between the employee and the company but now I, look at, um, now I look at it more like it's a, it's a network, but not a network in terms of local area networks. It's like a network in the sense of the word that the internet's a network. And all of us are nodes in that network. And all of us have a, a niche down specialty that makes each of us uniquely the best at some certain thing that's valued by that network. And the way you succeed in the 21st century economy is you give the network what it wants based on your superpowers. And uh, you no longer affiliate yourself exclusively with the company you work for. You affiliate yourself with the network writ large, and you, you advertise the value that your node adds to the network. And then the law of supply and demand matches your superpowers with the people who are desperate for it in the network. And then, by giving the network what it wants, you prosper. And so, uh, to me, that's kind of the world that we're headed into. And a lot of people say, "Well, people aren't that entrepreneurial." But I think people are born more entrepreneurial than folks realize. Ever since you know caveman times, when you have to go find food and stuff. Uh, but but school right now beats it out of people, and you know it's like the, the society often tends to cause people to unlearn how to be entrepreneurial. And that's not surprising because most of the institutions in our society, especially the education system, were designed to feed these hierarchical monolithic organizations. They were designed to produce cogs that would go join these organizations. And so...
0: And that that would be obedient, right? That's right. I mean, Pink Floyd wasn't that wrong, right? (laughs) Right, right. So if there's a silver lining in this... You could
1: say, what are the things that have accelerated? I would say things that bring about this potential networked world of empowered people who uh, market and prosper based on their superpowers. Uh, I have to believe that's been brought forward by at least 10 years. Because the the, the parts of society that would have resisted it, education, healthcare. care, uh, And a lot of a lot of, you know, companies with big corporate headquarters, you know, now the alternative is just too obvious and too credible to look back, you know, for you to use any safety or fear, uncertainty and doubt kind of messages to present it, prevent it from going forward.
0: Yeah, there's there's hard to make a safety argument from, Okay, so you take uh, an hour and a half out of my day because I don't have to commute. So therefore, I'm not in the car getting in a car accident, polluting the planet. But I, I'm, I'm, so in other words, it's, it's hard to argue there's a safety component with using Zoom.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's, but it's interesting because, uh, oh, oh you'll be surprised. Somebody will probably do a study. They'll sponsor a study that says sitting in your chair and doing Zoom gives you fatigue and it's bad for you. I, I guarantee you, it, it, we're, we'll sit here and laugh at the parody of it, but there will be somebody who will make a serious case that it's unsafe to be on Zoom. But uh, but so, you know the other the other thing I was thinking about, Chris, as you brought this up, is uh, it is very related to your niche down book, like um, in in the following way. Like I think that one of the arguments that I really appreciated that you made was that everybody is uniquely themselves. You know, there's only one you, no matter what it is about you that you there's only one you, and you know if you if you if you go back to the theory of comparative advantage. That means that there is always something that the network will pay you more than they'll pay anybody else for in this world. And people say, well, that's not true. Like, let's say that I'm the best at, um, let's say you and I are, let's say you're better at marketing than I am and you're better at mowing lawns than I am. Well, and I'm not gonna have a job because I'm worse at both. Well, that's not true because you're gonna say, okay, Mike, relative to uh, all your other talents, lawn mowing is your thing even if you suck at it compared to me, but you're not going to want to mow lawns. You're going to want to be an awesome CMO because you get paid better and there's an opportunity cost of your time mowing lawns, right? And so the reason comparative advantage works is you don't have to be the best. You just have to be comparatively optimal in something. And as long as you're comparatively optimal in something, the network will always pay for your uniqueness. And so to me, that's what's empowering about the the world that we're headed into. And, and, you know, we're going to have to unwind some stuff. You know, we've, the the whole Western world has become a little bit of a nanny state and, you know, wants to control too many things. And, you know, they'll, they'll look at some of this gig stuff as if it's exploitative and that, that, um, but what they, but what they don't understand is the present doesn't work anymore and that the social contract of how these companies are set up doesn't work anymore. And so we have to we have to define something that does work rather than just react to every new attempt to make a different and better future. Because, you know, when all you can do is bring the present forward, you always bring the baggage of the present forward in every solution you come up with. And, you know, those solutions aren't working. They they haven't worked for quite some
0: time. Yeah, we we broke the present. I think I, I couldn't agree more. The other yeah. one, I, I, I've i been thinking a lot about this because I've been thinking along somewhat similar lines. And one of the things I, I wonder, maybe this is the prepper in me meets the entrepreneur in me. And we had Jeffrey Kane on the podcast who wrote Samsung Rising, and he sort of brought me inside of, of both North and South Korea. So maybe all this stuff is swizzling around in the old duder's <laughs> head here. But all that said... <laughs> You know, you have a lot of really smart conversations and a lot of whiskey and it all swizzles around. It's a good thing that you got CMO, IPO superpower. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) God only knows I could be chasing rabbits down zebra holes. So here's the rabbit down the zebra hole. Are we um, moving towards a world where we have much more radical self-reliance? Because I think another part of this is, oh. Fuck, the federal government isn't showing up. Yeah. Oh, um, I just was on a conference call with the medical office. Op- this was several weeks ago. Now it's no longer true, but it was true at the time. I got on a conference call with our supervisor, county supervisor, and medical health officer that said we have a, a, a forecast for a hundred uh, people who need ICU beds and ventilators in Santa Cruz. We currently have 25 and we're trying to stand up another 25. So me being me on the call say, okay, Dr. Gerald Ducci, what happens to the 50 people? And he says, well, either um, other counties take them or we'll have to use medical ethics guidelines to decide who gets treated. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, well am I the only guy in my community that is absolutely outraged that we have a we have a current at the time, not the case now, but at the time we had a fucking set a forecast and a plan that said potentially fifty people die in Santa Cruz and we're just going to have to live with that. That's what the fucking guy said on the call, right And so anyway, what's my point? whether it's the economic impact on this on businesses realizing holy shit, we need to have more cash on hand because without it you know, we're, we're waiting for the federal and the state government to come bail our ass out, and we don't like that. That's also true at the individual level. It's like, well, maybe having three days worth of fucking savings is a really bad idea. How do I put myself in a position where I can actually begin to build some uh financial security for my family, um, et cetera, et cetera. And look, I also, I don't want to be a shit. I understand there's people who are not, you know, have a, would have a very hard time doing that. And we have a, there's a lot of shit wrong in our world that not everybody can go do that. I understand that. But what I've been wondering is, will people wake up and go, you know what? What part of this says to me is we're on our own. We've sort of expected, you know, mother America to take care of a bunch of shit and a mother America didn't take care of a bunch of shit here. And maybe I need to empower myself. I need to be creative. I need to take responsibility. Uh, or or is, that, is this some uh, whiskey-induced libertarian <laughs> fantasy I'm having? Well,
1: <laughs> well so here's, here's the way I think about it. I think that the 21st century, on the balance, will be more about decentralization across the board so why is that well from about 1850 until i would argue 2000 ish centralization worked because we had an industrial economy so if you're gonna if you're gonna produce widgets you make money by having economies of scale and distribution it's about mass production mass distribution and so it makes logical sense that you would have a centralized uh, organization building it because you want really big factories, you know, like the, the River Rouge uh, plant at Ford, right? And they would they would take the raw materials at one end and have a, a Model T out of the other end, right? And this, you know, whole towns were supported by this factory, um, and you know, not surprisingly, the military governments education system also uh, became different types of factories of centralization, right? And, and power devolved from the states for the most part to the central government for the most part. And then in, in the Western world, you had the rise of governments, central governments getting bigger and bigger. And then you had the impact of the Fed on the money supply. The, the, the first sign to me of this unraveling actually wasn't in the western world, soviet union and so one one interpretation of the soviet union collapse is communism's bad it was proven wrong which by the way you would you would win that argument with me if you said that (laughs) but the other um the other argument would be it was a sign of coming attractions and that mega politics and mega just mega centralization is not going to work anymore. In a in a in a world that's characterized not by mass production, mass distribution, but mass computation, mass connectivity, and in a world of mass computation, mass connectivity, you don't want vertically integrated, brittle organizations that are based on atoms. You want uh, decentralized, loosely affiliated and coupled networks with nodes that are empowered to take decentralized initiative and can form ad hoc connections Mm -hmm. based on mutually agreed upon protocols. And so um, that's what I think is really happening. And I think that COVID-19, it wasn't so much just that our our federal government's incompetent. I believe that it it just showed again that they can't deliver services efficiently in their paradigm, no matter how hard they try. That's why they that's why Obama yes. couldn't launch a website. And it's like what what it what it told me was not so much that the government is leaving you to fend for yourself, it's that the the way our government's structured is not yet matchable to how society makes progress and how society produces the future. And so, therefore, we the people. You know, I think that the the nation state uh, and mega politics and big government and you know big nationalism. It reminds me a lot of the Catholic Church. You know, they're still practicing Catholics and who are really focused on it. And you know, I'm I'm as nice to Catholicism as the next guy, but I don't think about it all the time. And my guess is, 100 years from now, there'll still be patriotism, but it'll be patriotism in the sense that people are patriotic to the catholic church it won't be you know 500 years ago you had to be freaking patriotic to the catholic church cuz the pope was a big deal and he like had had huge influence but now the pope kind of has a lot of influence over people who care a lot about the catholic religion and and you know i'm not trying to get into religious thing here but i think that the the nation state will be like that 100 years from like 100 years yeah. from now yeah. the central government won't affect day to day life very much, in my opinion, and, and to the extent that it does it all, it'll be more for religious reasons than for any reality based impact they're having.
0: You just look at the fact that we're so much in global business, right? Like all of us have friends all around the world, people that we communicate and collaborate with and work with. And, you know, to your point on you got a laptop, you can you can create a radio station and a media company. I mean, I forget what the f- latest number is, but, you know, we've been downloaded in over 160 countries. You're like, what? I didn't even know yeah, there were 160 yeah. countries. Yeah, like, how's I mean, that even possible, right? So totally. it's like... And 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 and, you know the friends that you have in the Philippines and the friends that I have in India and vice we love them just like we love the guy and gal who was on our street when we grew up in the in our hometown right yeah there's no there's no country anymore yeah
1: so and I mean I think there is but um, I I just think that the 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 role of the central government is going to be more about protecting rights where they have a unique ability. You know, like if if somebody declares war on the United States, I'd like the US Army to be effective. Um and and, and you know, I'd rather have the US Army there than have the, the Ross California Marin County Army militia fighting against the Russians if they declared war on us, right? So there are there are times when economies of scale matter. We could
0: bring down some Canadians with some molson and some canoes.
1: That's right. Well, or the Canadians could invade Ross and, and plant the flag. Right. But, but, um, but I wouldn't but I guess worry about that, it. Yes, I'm, I'm not losing sleep over it. But but, um, but I guess so th- there will be a role for centralized uh, activities. But I Services. guess to me, that's right. But, But like if you think about most of the stuff that the government spends money on today, I would argue can be handled far better in a decentralized network centric fashion. And so my, I see one of two scenarios. One scenario is the government just stays in a state of denial, keeps spending money, keeps us into debt, and uh, we have some type of a deflationary or inflationary collapse of the currency, you know, like what happens in these dictatorships that just print print their way out of problems. The, the other approach that I think could happen is um, the government progressively comes to realize that... They can't afford these unfunded liabilities and what they're better off doing is re, redistributing them to the private sector and networks and, um, you know, g- getting uh, education, healthcare, all these, all these businesses that are spiraling costs out of control. Onto a different cost curve, which is more similar, like plasma TVs, computers, smartphones, you know, because otherwise we're headed to a world where a doctor's visit costs a million dollars and plasma TV costs five bucks. And like, it's just not sustainable. <laughs> right. And so, so, you know, and it's exactly.
0: fucking stupid.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, so I think that, that, um, you know, my, my, my guess is that, that the, the government will hopefully realize through time that it, it can't pay for itself anymore that it's um you know you can't spend forever a dollar of other people's money to deliver 70 cents worth of services that could be delivered for 50 cents of cost
0: you know and to to echo your point mike you know uh, we were lucky enough to have uh general McChrystal back on uh not long ago and um one of the points I made to him is this uh, I've been having this ongoing discussion with Doug Merritt, the CEO of Splunk. And as this thing for as C 19 first took off, I think what part of what we saw, to your point, I think, I'm checking this out with you, is the digital network capabilities, and I'll just pick the three that I used in my conversation with with McCrystal of Costco, Amazon, and Walmart. Versus the digital network supply chain capabilities of the federal government, our hospital systems. And then you look at the ability to share information across suppliers. So what did we see? We saw three legendary American businesses respond to this crisis in a way that is truly unprecedented in the history of fucking business. Hire hundreds of thousands of people. reconfigure their priorities and their supply chains and their distribution capabilities. It's your point on the websites, keep the fucking websites up where where they could keep the physical locations, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so my point is these highly digital, highly networked, highly data savvy, not just in terms of the use of the technology, but they, they paid attention to the data. This is what it's telling us. We need to move here. We need to do this. We need to do that. Versus a data uh, ignorant government right. and a severe lack of digitization and supply chains in some of these, let's just call them government services. And we saw a really big difference in the ability to execute as a result and and therefore protect American the American economy and, of course, protect, protect lives.
1: Yeah. And the, the other thing is, and um, it, it may seem like I'm bashing the federal government too much, you could say the same about much of the Fortune 500, right? So, the, the, in um, the Fortune 500 in since I, I think the last numbers I had was since like 2010. I could be wrong. I, we can fact check it, but my understanding is that since around 2010, um, maybe in the last 15 years, Fortune 500 companies have um, uh, paid back uh, paid back about three and a half trillion in dividends. And bought back about three and a half trillion in stock, and so that's that's greater than seven trillion dollars worth of what I call fake growth. Um, fake growth is growth theater. It's it's um, uh, I'm going to pretend that my stock price is going up by buying back shares. So there's fewer shares, and the the average price per share goes up. You know, IBM's now borrowed over hundred billion dollars just to buy back their own stock. Borrowed money. 100 billion, over $100 billion just to buy back their own stock. So it's not like they're just using their profits to buy back stock. These companies are borrowing money at below what interest rates should be because the Fed is jacked with the money supply. Then they use it to buy back their own shares. Does that help employees? No, because you know it's not creating new jobs, not creating new products. It's not advancing the standard of living in any way. It's just letting managers who own shares get paid more because they get a share bonus because the stock went up and it lets well, the, and shareholders the other thing too is more.
0: Look, yeah. I, I may be overly simplistic. You're a billion times smarter than I am buying back stock. Isn't that like a press release that says, Hey, uh, we don't have any fucking ideas. So we're going to buy back our stock.
1: Yeah. there. So there's a perverse honesty to it. Right. So there's a, um, um there's kind of an acceptance to it. And I bet you that if you said, um, "If I haven't had the time to run the numbers, but I was thinking about um, asking somebody to help me create what I would call, in fact, if any of your listeners ever want to do this together, the fake growth index. And it would be share buybacks divided by your market cap. And I bet you that you would discover that the highest fake grower index companies are the ones that really didn't do much of anything to help with covid and they they you know because they're like okay how are we going to get bailed out because we don't have enough money on the balance sheet you know these airlines um they 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 go into bankruptcy all the time and when they start making money they 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 take their profits and they buy back their own stock and so now you know it seems pretty clear they'll get they'll get bailed out by the government but you know do the airlines have a good data supply chain hell no, you know, and, and you wouldn't be able to convince them to, um, if, if you wanted to. And so that the, the companies that I've seen do, uh, acquit themselves well, well in this, they have, uh, you know, data that flows through their networks and they're highly resilient and they're able to get data in the hands of the right people at the right time. The, the success of our response to COVID in hindsight, will be a success of decentralized networks acting at the edge, whether that's Amazon, whether that's um, you know local citizens who just decided to make a difference, or whether it's the heroes on the front lines who staffed these hospitals and stayed in the grocery stores. Those are the people who are going to bring this country back. It, it won't be the people that you would have expected Or that you would have thought, get paid to do this. Preach it from on high,
0: Dr. (laughs) Maples. (laughs) I'm sounding like John
1: Belushi in Animal House.
0: Well, as long as we don't start looking like John Belushi in Animal House. <laughs> Although I don't know how you' doing with the quarantine fifteen. I was thinking you look a little trim to me, actually. Uh, I don't know. I've I, I, I've
1: started to lose a little bit recently, but I've still got a ways to go. You know, but if, if maybe maybe that'll be one of the good things that comes of it.
0: Well, I think when you, uh, in my case, when you increase your alcohol uh, consumption by uh, 200x.
1: (laughs) Which wasn't on a, it was on a non-zero number, probably.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I consider a beer, a glass of wine and a glass of scotch after dinner, not drinking. So, (laughs) all right. Well, is there anything else you want to touch on, Dr. Maples? Um, You know, I guess the the one thing I would just say is that, um, you know,
1: I don't know how many people are out there listening to this but um it's just I, you, I me and my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure all... about my mom.
1: <laughs> all of us can design a, a better world. You know, it's it's not just um you don't just have to have a startup idea or or even a business idea. You know, Elvis Presley had a song, right? And and uh Einstein had a formula and, and uh, Rosa Parks, you know, was pissed off because she couldn't sit on a bus. And, um, you know, MLK had a dream. And so the, the future isn't just about backcasting for creating some startup powered by Moore's Law that's going to have a billion dollar exit. The, the future is something that we can all choose to actively participate in the world around us was designed by people who felt that way not by people who are smarter than us and like all of us can build things all of us can change the rules rather than blindly follow them if we want to see a different future that's better and you know the present ain't working so well and so i mean i just hope that if if nothing else that people who are listening to this realize their agency in uh, kind of uh, forging a path to a better world, just like everybody is their unique niche, like as you express in your niche down book, everybody has their unique contribution to offer to having the world be the the, the world as we make of it. And, um, you know, everybody, every single person who listens to your podcast, so that's what I hope is, uh, you know, everybody finds their own Archimedes lever to move the world no matter, no, you know, no matter what their niche is. So and I should probably that's probably enough John Belushi for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, I love it. And I, I think it's true. And when evil brings a knife, love brings a tank. That's right. And. and I agree with you, Mike. I think this is the moment of our time, and I think those of us—not all of us—are in a position. And I understand that if you're, if you're not, but those of us who are in any kind of position to use your word to have agency, then now's the time for action, and we can make a difference. You know, we hear this word all oh, well, while society rah, 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 or the government. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Society is the way you and I treat each other. Do, do we give each other the finger on the highway or not, right? Right, right. And, you know, we have a chance. Um, you know,
1: I think about my grandparents, and they were members of what people call the greatest generation. And everybody out there, I mean, the way we respond to this could be worthy of the times. And, uh, you know, just like how, um, you know, my, my grandfather did in uh, early 40s. And so, uh, but, but, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. That's, that's a decision. Just like all great things, greatness is a decision. And, you know, we're just going to have to decide if we're going to just let it all happen to us, or we're going to, we're going to, you know, like, like Boyd would say, are are we going to be a shaper or a reactor?
0: Well, I know what your answer is, and you know what my answer is. Yep. (laughs) You betcha. Anything else, Mike?
1: Uh, I've already talked too much, but. So thanks no, for having haven't. me. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Well, th- thank you. And look, I know this is corny, but I'm going to say it anyway. I fucking love you. You're amazing.
1: <laughs> Back at you. And I hope I can. I hope I can see you again in person one of these days.
0: It would be uh, it'd be sure nice to get together and have a meeting or a meal or all those things. <laughs> to do that we want
1: <laughs> to do something that we once
0: did. <laughs> thank you, brother. All right. See you, Christopher. Thanks. Well, there he is. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And um, we would appreciate you just a little bit more if you shared the legendary Mike Maples with everyone you know right now. (laughs) Most podcast apps have a sharing uh, uh, feature right there uh, on your screen. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Mike Maples. You can find him at floodgate.com. And also, if you check the show notes out for this episode, you'll find a click through to his legendary new uh, blog post. Uh, one Life Fully Lived.org is a nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And man, we all need a little extra help doing that right now. Check out the number one, Life fully Lived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant don't think about virtual assistants anymore what you want is a dedicated distant assistant check out bottleneck.online where they've been uh, doing the distancing thing before distancing was a thing Uh, my friends at interviewvalet.com i'm going to help get your leading thoughts on some leading podcasts visit interviewvalet.com and the good folks at devry university are working hard to make a difference for people who want to get ahead and teach themselves some stuff so check out devry.edu today my friends at Atrinet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for, for over 20 years. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And if it's possible, if you got a couple quarters laying around, now's the time to make a difference. Uh, check out your local charities, food banks faith-based organizations or anyone else you want, Uh, Doctors Without Borders, so many others making a difference today. Make one if you can. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. As always, we need to warn you that the creators of this oddcast have more than likely been consuming copious amounts of libations uh, we are edited and produced by the legendary Jason DeFilippo. If you love podcasts and you love technology, check out Grumpy Old Geeks with Jason and his partner, Brian Schulmeister. Uh, technical awesomeness around here by Jamie J and Sarah Knox, and they build Lockhead.com for us. Show notes by Diane Gervasio and Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Remember to spread podcasts, stop viruses, keep your hands up and your chin down. George Carlin was right. Listen to Lucinda Listen to Williams. Only buy pasture Rage free-range eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Kim Kardashian. Sorry, Kimmy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Uh, stay legendary. And of course, until we're together again, follow your different.